Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. This week, we're kicking off chapter by chapter for Prisoner of Azkaban, chapter one, Alpost, coming up. But before we get started, we just wanted to thank our patrons for supporting us at patreon.com slash MuggleCast. We are only a weekly podcast, thanks to listener support. We've engorgioed our benefits this year, too, by the way. We're now doing two bonus MuggleCast installments a month. Uh, we'll be recording a new one this week, kind of March Madness themed, looking at some of the coolest items, magical items in the Wizarding World. Magical items, including like household items and food. Yes. It's going to be great. There's a lot of food in the Wizarding World, so it took up half the entire bracket. Yeah, <laughs> that'll be on our Patreon this week. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's many more benefits on our Patreon. So check it all out. Patreon.com slash MuggleCast. So without further ado, we're going to jump straight into Prisoner of Azkaban this week. I just thought we should kind of look back briefly on the launch of the book, since we're starting it this week. Prisoner of Azkaban was published July 8th, 1999 in the UK. And then in the US, it was published September 8th, 1999. So this was the last book in the Harry Potter series to receive different dates. I have my original copy right here. Uh, and Are the pages falling out? You know what? No. no. <laughs> what does that say about how many times I've read this book? Mine is. Look at this cover. The cover is coming away from the uh, like book at the edge there. And Eric's yeah. got the paperback there, it looks like. Yeah, I was a late fan. I only got the paperback. Does it smell like Harry Potter? Yes. Oh, let me smell mine. And sweat. Mm. And maybe some it's tears. Sweat. Maybe some tears. Eric was sweating all over the book. Harry actually has my copy behind me. He's reading it under the sheets over there. Uh, oh, ah. I see. I see. I, you know, Micah, at first, I don't want to call you out for changing your background, but at first it was Vernon checking on Harry. And I just naturally thought that was the room that you were recording in because it's a bedroom. And I was just like, oh, who's that behind you? And then I noticed and I was like, oh, OK. That is a good Zoom background. Yeah, this is great. But like I did for Chamber of Secrets. I wrote in the book as a little baby Andrew when I started reading it and when I finished reading it. So you can see here, I started on oh. release day, September 8th, 1999, and I finished September 29th, 1999. It took you 21 days to read this book? Hey, I was well, young. you were like 10. I was probably starting school <laughs> and maybe I didn't like the book. I don't know. No, you took your time. Like. That's a, that's a good pace. I was not trying to make fun. It took 21 days. So if we can finish reading this in 21 days, just like I did the first time I read it, I think that'd be pretty cool. The first time I read this book, I read it in like six hours. <laughs> I was rushing wow. through. I know I was a massive, massive, like I was way into it. Andrew, if it makes you feel any better, we will only be uh, three chapters into this book 21 days from now. So. Okay. I, I was a slow reader, so this is reading even more slowly. I really didn't mean to make, make fun. It was only like no, a no. attempted humor. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know when we're kids and you have a book that dominates your summer, though? Like, really, just like yeah. it's the book you have with you everywhere you go, family affairs, everything. Just like. Yeah. Well, it was, like I said, September 8th in the U.S. I'm sure I was starting school around that time. We normally started in early September, so it just maybe didn't feel like a major priority. I think it's cool you got it on release day. That's cool as hell. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, I do remember 
we had ordered so midnight book releases for for Harry Potter hadn't started yet. Those would start with Goblet of Fire. I do remember though pre-ordering the book on Amazon, and I still remember pulling it out of the mailbox that day. It was I was really looking forward to it, having read Chamber of Secrets, I guess, the year prior or earlier in this year. And I do seem to recall Amazon was because Harry Potter was becoming pretty popular at that point. Amazon was uh, good about getting it to fans on release day. And I recall it being wrapped in a special box that said like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban on it. I don't have that box, unfortunately. I have boxes from other midnight releases. I tried to look on eBay to see if I could find the Prisoner of Azkaban one. Couldn't. But um, that's my recollection. And I'm very happy that I still remember pulling it out of the mailbox that day. But how about you three? When when did you read this book? Do you remember? Andrew, I just wanted to say you're like the ultimate early adopter <laughs> on this panel. I think you got into Harry Potter before any of us. I didn't get into it until a few months after this, what you're talking about, um, because I got the first three books for my 11th birthday, which was in December of 1999. So that was a few months after Prisoner of Azkaban was published here in the US um, and burned through those first three books very quickly. Don't remember how fast it was. It's all kind of a blur. Um, But, you know, obviously it's been a staple ever since. I do remember loving this book and being really floored by the twist at the end. So I'm excited to talk about that once we get further along into the story. Well, I wouldn't uh, read this book for another three or four years. Uh, actually, it was three. I was not 11 anymore. Sadly, I was like, well, it came out. It came out when I was 11. This is the book that I was supposed to read when I was like Harry's, you know, first Hogwarts year. I borrowed it from my friend's dad. Uh, this was actually a copy. My friend Justin's dad had like a copy he wasn't reading or or just had. Out of the, I thought it was the coolest thing for someone's dad to have this book that I was like quickly getting into because I borrowed book two from another one of my friends. Uh, and then this was the book I got from him. So I, I gave it back at the end and eventually got my my box set of the first four. But yeah, this was this was that was how I got the book. I took it home, really just read it. And again, it floored me. Just totally. It it was it became my favorite then and has stayed my favorite ever since. Yeah, very similar to you, Eric. Uh, I was a a late bloomer uh, to the Harry Potter series. I didn't start reading, I want to say, until that summer of 2005, uh, which, of course, is when Half-Blood Prince uh, came out. And uh, I did a lot of pre-reading prior (laughs) to the six books release. And then uh, happened on to MuggleNet uh, to read all the theories uh, about the upcoming book. But uh, what I really remember about reading Prisoner of Azkaban in particular was this was the first of the books that really started to captivate me. Um, the story was just so good. And that's not to take anything away from Sorcerer's Stone or Chamber of Secrets, but I think the way that this story is written and sort of the pieces of the puzzle that are there all along, but you don't necessarily start to put together until much later on in the book um, were just really well laid out. So I'm looking forward, much like Laura said, to us talking about, you know, really, it, this is a mystery, this this book. Uh, and it's it's just so fun to read. And it's also why it's it's my favorite. Um, well, there's many reasons why it's my favorite, but I'm sure we'll talk more about that as we go on. All right, great. Well, without further ado, why don't we kick things off with our seven word summary 
And Laura, you're leading the chapter and getting things started with our summary today. No pressure. I know. Lucky me. All right. Here we go. Owls. Deliver. Presence. Two. Harry's. Bedroom. Window. Yes! <laughs> well done. I thought Eric might <laughs> offer an adjective, but all right. Sorry. It, it looks... It's okay. How lucky was it that the, that window was open and he happened to be looking out of it? That's true. This is... This is an appropriate summary because the chapter would have gone very differently had the window not been open. <laughs> would have been very bad for poor, poor uh, Hedwig, Errol, and the Hogwarts owl. I mean, Errol was already mostly dead. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, well, jumping right into this chapter. This chapter is set up, set up, set up. One, to kind of give... Um, summaries of what have ha- what's happened previously in the story, as well as setting up a lot that is to come in this story. So I wanted to ask, do y'all get the sense, and I would need to remind myself because I haven't refreshed myself on the first chapters of the subsequent books in a while. Is this the last Harry Potter book where we get the big previously on Harry Potter info dump? <laughs> For the most part, this is certainly the most massive one I think there is. It covers everything from Harry's friends to his relationship with his professors to the Dursleys. If I'm remembering correctly, like book four, it obviously opens way different outside of Harry. But then the very next chapter, when you do get Harry, it maybe mentions like his green eyes and Voldemort. And like it's not so much about all the rest of his relationships. But I kind of like the way in this book, it kind of felt, I think, when I was first reading it, like, although it's standard to like reintroduce you and maybe some people are reading this book first, so they like have to kind of catch you up. It still feels really nice and warm to me that, you know, Harry spends the whole chapter thinking he's not going to get any presents. And then the chapter ends with him getting them. And he's like, man, he's happy to have a birthday. It's like, what a (laughs) lovely start to the book. And he gets his first birthday cards too, right? There's He makes a note of that, that he'd never gotten a birthday card before. And if I were Harry in this chapter, I would be paranoid that somebody is blocking communication again after what happened in oh. Chamber of Secrets. He doesn't mention <laughs> yeah. that, but I was thinking that on his behalf. Yeah. It is interesting that there's not like trauma carryover because we have to remember the events of Chamber of Secrets are a few short weeks ago at this point in the story. That's true. If anything, Dobby should be there facilitating (laughs) mail (laughs) presence, everything that is being delivered (laughs) to Privet Drive after what he did in Chamber of Secrets. But uh, yeah, I, I think that this is the last time we do kind of get the previously on Harry Potter info dump. And it makes sense because if you're now going to be four books into the series, once Goblet of Fire comes around, it's presumed that you have a decent sense of what is going on in the series. I do think it is always good to do a quick little recap, but as Eric mentioned, Goblet of Fire opens from Frank Bryce's perspective. So we get a totally different opening chapter than we've had in a while. Uh, and that I think is is good because we don't always need to see things from Harry's perspective. Well, as a, as a quick reminder, I know I've mentioned this before, but book four doing that is the reason I didn't read Harry Potter for a further two years. 
is I picked up Goblet oh, wow. of Fire, got really confused about who Wormtail was and all these other people. And I was just <laughs> like, nope. And I put the book back. And it wasn't until the movie came out that I like. I wow. guess if we want to get technical about it, though, it is technically from Harry's perspective. It's just he's dreaming it dreaming or, or it. witnessing it, really, probably through the Horcrux connection. The Horcrux. Yeah. yeah. I also wonder if it has to do with the author's stature at at by the time she got around to writing Goblet of Fire, because at that point, you know, Harry Potter had really blown up and maybe the editors gave her more leeway. Whereas if she hadn't blown up, editors may have encouraged these catch ups or summaries. Yeah. In the well, later Andrew, books. Andrew, as you said, the books were eclipsed. They were coming together. They were they were meeting each other on the release date. So this is only a few months delayed between the US and the UK. By the time you get to book four, when it's the simultaneous UK and U- US release, you know how big that is for a book? That's crazy. So yeah, I think yeah. you're right. The popularity just absolutely, was, at that point, it was in tandem. Well, conditions at the Dursleys, you know, they're not great. They're about the same, but they have shown meager improvement. Hedwig is allowed out of her cage at night, um, which is a pretty big improvement over the previous year where she was confined to her cage 24-7. But this is only because she makes so much noise otherwise, and Vernon decides, you know, this is the the only solution to that. But Andrew, you're kind of surprised that he didn't take a more violent approach with Hedwig? Yeah, knowing Vernon, you'd think uh he would do something a little more violent like you know bullet to al's head maybe not get out of here vernon strikes me as someone who who would talk a big game like that i mean remember he brought the rifle with him to you know the (laughs) the little shack on the rock in uh sorcerer's stone he strikes me as someone who would be like i've got a gun but wouldn't actually know how to operate it Mm. He gives that kind of energy, you know. But anyway, speaking of people not knowing how to use things, Ron (laughs) makes a disastrous phone call trying to reach Harry. We all know how this plays out. Ron doesn't understand that he does not need to shout into the telephone. So Vernon picks up the phone and gets this. I'm Ron Weasley. I'm Harry's friend from school. Of course, this causes a meltdown with the Dursleys. Harry is forbidden from giving out the number again. As a result of this, you know, he's not ultimately expecting to ever hear from his friends again via phone. But I have a question about this. Ron is the son of the head of misuse of Muggle Artifacts office. Oh, well, that that's fitting because he just misused a Muggle Artifact. Yes, I found it surprising that he didn't have a better idea of how to use a phone or that he didn't talk to Mr. Weasley about making a phone call before he did it. I also want to know, where did he obtain a phone? Yeah. <laughs> how did Is he Is he going this? to the, like, the neighbor's house, the local like town payphone? What's going on? That's what I'm thinking, like a payphone out on the street. Yeah, I was kind of imagining this like... Ron is slowly throwing each word into the, into the phone because he's not sure like how it actually like moves across the airwaves. So he's like, I'm Ron Weasley <laughs> and like giving it a second to process or something. It is really funny. Ron, you can call our number 
anytime you want and yell into the phone, buddy, as oh. a way to practice how to use a telephone. One now you know someone's nine two zero three muggle. Oh yeah, yeah. If anybody would like to practice how to speak on a telephone, <laughs> oh, feel free to call our phone number one nine two zero three muggle, and you can do it. We will offer those services for free. We'll compile them and play them all on next week's episode. <laughs> how about that? That sounds great. But I, I envision Ron sneaking into the garage at the burrow where we know that Arthur kind of has his secret stash of muggle artifacts. And I am thinking that there's a phone there and that's what he's doing. But he could have easily consulted his dad on how to use the phones. And maybe he should be taking muggle studies in his third year. Not to get into the weeds, Micah, but if he has a phone in, if Arthur has a phone in like his stash of stuff, you'd have to plug it into a phone line and, you know, like pay a bill. So I doubt mm. it's actually happening at the Weasley's house. You don't think he could, Arthur we're talking about now, do a little bit of magic on the phone so he doesn't have to actually plug it in and pay anything? It's an interesting Maybe. question. I mean, you would think that the ministry would have phones because they have diplomatic relations with the Muggle government. True. So surely they're not always like apparating into the prime minister's office to talk to them. Right. And a phone, a phone booth is the visitor entrance to the ministry. Right. What's also very mm -hmm. comical about this is we're sitting here talking about using landline telephones, which all of us are old enough to remember having used, but I guarantee you yeah. some of our listeners have never used a landline telephone or even know what they are. Yeah. yeah. Because cell phones have always been a thing. Well, it's one of the first things you learn as a kid, your address, your name, how to write your name and your phone number, which in my case was seven digits. You didn't need the area code even. I'm so glad you brought that up because it just reminded me that I I remember, and I'm sure we all remember, when we all had to learn our area code, when that got introduced, it was a big thing at my school. We were all given sheets where we had to like fill in our regular phone number plus the area code. And it took a little while for people to remember, oh, there's three extra digits now that I have to dial when I call my friends. I had a friend in Maryland, so I had to dial the one and then the 410, which is his area code. And as a result, I did learn my area code a little before it was introduced. And I felt like so cool because I knew like these extra three numbers that didn't do anything for local <laughs> calls. And I was like, yeah. So when I would write my home phone number, I have little worksheets and I wrote one six one zero, and then the rest of it. And I was just like before it was needed. And I was a real nerd. Yeah. But yeah. Phone numbers. So I don't know how Ron got it, but it's cool and, and kind of heartbreaking that Harry gave gave out his number to his friend. He's like, if you ever want to reach me, here you go. And then like Vernon Call takes me the, maybe. Yeah. Vernon Vernon takes the position of how dare you give this out to people like you, how they like never contact us again. He shouts to this 12 year old, don't come near my family. Like, like, <laughs> honestly, like this kid's not a threat to you, but it's that I don't know. Harry just crossed an imaginary it's line. The prejudice here. that is deeply rooted within Vernon. For some reason, we really, we really don't know why. Honestly, that I don't. 
know that we ever truly get an answer for why he feels the way that he does towards the wizarding community. But well, he's in for a surprise in Goblet of Fire because uh, <laughs> they're about to crash his living room. <laughs> well, I was going to say he might end up wishing that he had relented a little bit on the telephone thing. On the telephone thing, thing yeah. In, in, in Goblet of Fire, they give him a reason to hate wizards. <laughs> I'll just say that. Well, that's because Fred and George uh, are there. Yeah. Well, I thought in light of Ron's faux pas here, we could think about some other common examples of muggle technology that we could see vexing unknowing wizards who'd never used them before, and how maybe those things could go wrong. And I was thinking just because of the time period here, this is very loose, it's not exact. Um, But think of things from like the 90s and early 2000s, because that's roughly what we're talking about here. Um, the first thing I thought of was a GPS. And I know, you know, commercial GPS didn't come until a little bit later. I think it was more common in the early 2000s. But um, there were some early examples of GPS that you could get commercially. They were cost prohibitive. Most people wouldn't have had them. But for the sake of this discussion, I was imagining someone like Ron thinking that he could or should talk back to the GPS when it gives him directions. Um, Or if he like didn't hear an instruction, he missed a left turn or something like that. I could see him being like, wait, what? Tell me again. And like hitting it and being like, repeat that. I didn't get it. Um, And, you know, ultimately breaking it or something because he gets frustrated with it. Yeah. Is it voiced by Ignatia Wildsmith? (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i hope not i'll throw that thing out the window <laughs> or i was gonna say with some gps's even the older school ones you could like buy celebrity voices like samuel L. jackson yelling at ron That's weasley right. about turning right that would be pretty funny <laughs> tom tom right wasn't that i think tom so. tom was uh, a big yeah. one yeah pretty sure there was definitely an ian mckellen one I was also thinking of early examples of MP3 players. There were some really crappy ones that you could get in the 90s that didn't work very well. But I'm trying to imagine how a wizard like Ron or really anyone would get an MP3 player and like conceive of how you would put music on it. Um, And I'm imagining them thinking they have to like sing to it or something. That seems like something a wizard would do. Um, Or that would be a rule for a magical artifact. Like if you want it to contain this song, you have to sing the song to it. (laughs) And then ultimately they're stuck with an empty MP3 player because they don't know how to put music on it. This is not necessarily something that was 90s specific, but I could see wizards having a lot of issues with doorbells. Yeah. (laughs) And just. Some of them maybe having a lot of fun. Like I'm thinking of how Ron on the phone is screaming at Vernon, like just standing there pressing the button over and over again. Um, because we know <laughs> wizards travel via flu powder, port keys, apparition. They have all different means of being able to uh, show up at somebody's house and they don't necessarily need to even knock at the door. So I feel like a doorbell would be something. And depending on the tune that it's playing, yeah, maybe. You know, they like pressing the button over and over again. So I can also uh, I can also see them pushing and holding and yeah. some doorbells like the yeah. older doorbells did that thing where it would sustain the note, the first note before oh, going yeah. dong at the end. That would be yeah. nothing's more annoying because you got to like 
run to them and be like, no, let go, let go. Like, I get it. (laughs) I mean, some muggles are annoying with doorbells. Have y'all had the experience with somebody who will come up and be like, ding, 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 like to get your attention. It's super annoying. And then they knock and then they ring the bell again. It's like, give me 30 seconds or less to get to the door. (laughs) Give me, give me 15 seconds or less to get to the door. So. Uh, another thing I thought could be funny is microwaves, uh, especially because wizards just with the wave of their wand could heat up food. Uh, and I'm also imagining like a wizard going to the microwave and seeing how it says different things on there. Like if you're microwaving a pizza or you're microwaving chicken or like expecting that item to show up in the microwave <laughs> a- instead of it oh, heating it. Yeah. So just being completely confused by... Where's the chicken? Yeah. The microwave itself. And then they would definitely do what you're not supposed to do with microwaves, which is put like a fork or knife in there. Oh, yeah. And then it'll electrocute. <laughs> like tin foil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thinking about which technologies would foil wizards, I thought of regular muggle chess would just be like, first of all, so boring, but also like how long would it take certain wizards, like maybe even Ron, just to like wait for them to move and realize they're not going to. I feel like they have to be able to enchant a muggle chessboard to turn it into a wizard chessboard, right? They Whoa, should be able to. It's probably like an yeah. advanced transfiguration kind of because that's like what McGonagall's yeah. whole thing is year one. Um, but yeah, they they would probably add a flair. Like I can see a wizard visiting a muggle's house and after they leave, the the chess is like slightly more interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like just leave and and leave a little mark and then that person doesn't tell anybody. The other thing I thought of because this baffled me as just a muggle teenager, bop it. I can't see a wizard. Bop it. Oh, bop it. Man. Twist it. Twist it. Twist it. Shake it. <laughs> Shake it. Yeah, pull it. Pull it. Pull it. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just want to put that in the hands of a wizard and see what they do uh because they couldn't do any of it with their wand. They have to use their hand but not their wand and they got to like yeah. be coordinated and it's time. Yeah. I could see them being like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why? Yeah. Because we can't do magic, okay? We have to find ways to have fun. <laughs> right. Exactly. Eric's idea inspired me. How about Tamagotchis, our little virtual pets oh. that we would carry around on keychains and in our pockets, and we'd have to press the button to feed it midday? They were banned from my school at one point yep, because they got same. so popular same. and they were a distraction. Same. Yeah, that was, you know, that was like our mobile entertainment prior to smartphones. Cell yeah. phones. Occasionally yeah. they would leave a little poop and you had to clean it up. Right. But yeah. And if you didn't feed them, they died. Yeah. And wizards <laughs> would be like, well, why have a virtual pet when you can have a real one? Why not have just a pygmy puff? Yeah. The Wizarding World version of Tamagotchi would be like a tiny portrait of an animal or something that you have to like <laughs> take care of. I mean, it was it was Tamagotchi and then it was also Digimon where you could like but you had to like yep. little physically place the two things next to each other and they would then battle. It was really interesting. Or even just I mean, kids in Hogwarts have their own pets, real pets, an owl, yeah. a rat, yeah. a cat. I could see Hagrid liking Tamagotchis. Yeah. You think so? But but his fingers would be He's way a bigger too dude, big. And those things are v- exactly yeah. He'd accidentally clean up the poop when he meant to feed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, both Ron and Hermione, Harry learns, are on some really impressive summer holidays. Um, when Hedwig, the Hogwarts owl, arrive carrying Errol. Um, with the owls come letters and presents for Harry. So 
Ron and Hermione are respectively sent respectively uh, spending their summers in Egypt and France. Ron's in Egypt with his family. He talks about how Bill has taken them all around the tombs. Um, and he's like, you wouldn't believe all of the curses those old Egyptian wizards put on them. And then he notes, mom wouldn't let Ginny come in the last one. There were all of these mutant skeletons in there of muggles who'd broken in and grown extra heads and stuff. Now, I love kind of the real world connection here that's drawn um, between what we know to be a real problem of grave robbers, you know, people who've broken into these tombs. And tried to steal, you know, these really rare artifacts. And I love that there are consequences for that in the Harry Potter world. But I wanted to talk about Ginny here quickly. It makes complete sense that Mrs. Weasley wouldn't want Ginny to enter a chamber like that after she was literally just kidnapped and nearly murdered in a chamber a few weeks prior. I think it's interesting that Ron's just very um, casual about saying, yeah, mom didn't want Ginny to see that. It's like, no, duh. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good call out. I think I'm blown away by this catch. I think it's I think it's a really interesting kind of way to subtly hint at what happened with Ginny last year. It could all just be that she's, you know, 12, but then Ron is only 13. So why draw the line there? I think it does connect directly to what has happened. And it made me wonder what Ginny's summer has been like. It's not like she gets a reset and it's, you know, she's back to 100%. This has to be a really challenging time for her. And we just don't get to see sort of how she's recovering from the events of the previous book. In fact, it feels like it doesn't really get revisited until book six or book five. I think it was Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. When she and Harry have the acknowledgement of like Ginny was possessed by Voldemort. I think that's right because he's being well. a jerk and she's the only one who like gets through to him half a step. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, ancient Egypt is really cool. And the idea that there were wizards back then and that they had were able to like curse their tombs. Also, how cool is it that Bill just like works doing that? That's like, you don't know Bill. You don't meet him until he's at the table with Charlie in book four uh, when Harry goes, I think, to the Yeah, I mean, he's he's a curse breaker for Gringotts in Egypt. Um, And it would be honestly a really cool spinoff to get to see the adventures of Bill Weasley because, you know, he has to have had some really cool ones. You know, that would be that name recognition thing that HBO would be looking for, like a Weasley in the Mm -hmm. title. So just the adventures of Bill Weasley, Gringotts Cursebreaker would be amazing. Be <laughs> Let's cool. max that. Max that. <laughs> he Seriously. could te- team up with Brendan <laughs> Fraser on the next Mummy. Oh, that's going to be so good. Oh, that would be cool. Max that. We, oh, yeah. Shh, sound effects. <sighs> well, we did get an email last week during our, our Muggle Mail session talking about how this is the second trip in a very short period of time that the Weasleys are taking to Egypt, but it's really the parents for the most part, right? Who went to Egypt during chamber of secrets. And most of the kids stayed back at school uh, with Harry. Uh, However, it is a little strange that they would choose Egypt again. I know it's an opportunity for them to go and visit their son, but 
given everything we just talked about with Ginny, maybe it would have been a good idea to go someplace else where they don't have, you know, dark chambers <laughs> with mysterious things happening in them that could be triggering for a 12-year-old girl. Huh. Didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's perfectly fair. But what vacation destinations don't have dark chambers? I know all the ones you go to absolutely yeah. have dark chambers, Andrew. So how about Lake um, Tahoe? It's the summertime. It's not a vacation until, <laughs> well, you've seen what's in Lake Tahoe. They keep finding things in Lake Tahoe now because the water oh. levels are receding. So. Oh. Well, I have a I have a theory about this. Um, I think that the events of Chamber of Secrets are exactly why the Weasleys spent their winnings. You know, they won, Mr. Weasley won 700 galleons. Um, I think it's why they did this. They took an extended family vacation. Ron notes they're going to be in Egypt for a full month. It's a very long time. They're going there to visit Bill. I think it's because they want to all be together after what happened during the prior school year, because let's be honest, 700 galleons is a lot of money. And it would have been huge for the Weasleys financially. They probably had other more practical things that this money would have helped with. But ultimately, I think they decided they needed to get out of the country and be in a new environment to be together and get Jenny into a new place being with her family and not thinking or dwelling too much about what happened the previous year. They're just happy she's alive. Yeah, I love this. I mean, she came really close to dying, as close as anyone I think ever does without doing it. And uh, they just need to reconnect as a unit. This answers the question we were talking last week about, uh, were Arthur and Molly greedy for going to Egypt twice in a year? Uh, and because they also visited <laughs> Bill over Christmas, uh, it says in chamber. But now it makes sense to me. It makes all the sense to me now to just if it's easy, if they can get over there for a place where they can just hunker down and reunite as as a family. And maybe Bill couldn't get off work, but Charlie's very flexible and they all could go there. But nobody thought to ask Jenny where she wants to go. And she was like that place with all the tombs and the skeletons. And yeah, she's, maybe she wanted to go. Jenny's maybe a goth she got now. A I want to relive the, that. From Chamber of Secrets, the chamber, and was like, I want more of that now. Egypt has its own exotic stuff to see, so I would like it. Well, I wanted to talk about currency conversion here quickly. Um, according to, you know, the Harry Potter fandom wiki, um, one galleon is equal to $7.35 U.S. So the Weasleys won an equivalent to about $5,145. Does that seem like enough to spend a full month abroad for a family of nine? Maybe like two or three people going on a budget trip this would you could make this stretch but i was wondering where would they have stayed i actually looked up uh hotel rates in <laughs> egypt for like groups of 9 and uh by today's standards for 30 days that would cost uh tens of thousands oh of dollars God. so um i i'm just wondering what they did did they all like pack into bill's place and just stay there and make it work how did they make this money stretch for a full well, month? Well, we've talked before about how magic can accommodate quite a lot and relieve a ton of the financial burden. You may not be able to conjure food, but that's mm -hmm. one of the only things you can't conjure. And if you have it, you can replicate it. So I'm thinking about Perkins's tent 
and how big and spacious that is inside. Um, you could do an equally similar thing with any room. You would never be short of space for people. Um, you know, clothing wise, shelter wise, magic can really get you pretty far. So there's not a lot I can imagine them spending money on. Maybe not even the travel. Yeah. And staying at Bill's, I think, makes a lot of sense. That's what normally what you do. Well, maybe not normally, but that's pretty common. You stay with a family member when you're visiting them, if they have the space, of course. So, yeah, I don't know. They could probably, because it can be potentially cheap to travel and stay, then you're really only paying for food and maybe some tourist activities and that type of stuff. It doesn't cost too much. It'd just be like going out for a weekend at home. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what the um tours of the pyramids were like because you know Bill is obviously showing them you know chambers that contain muggle skeletons and things for for grave robbers and I'm just wondering does um does the wizarding world have its own tourism attractions because obviously muggles are touring the pyramids oh. too. I like that. So is it like separate tour companies that do this or are wizards just kind of quietly integrating in the way that we see them do in other ways? You know? I like the idea that it's a whole wizarding, like wizard tour guides, like wizard companies that take people around. I think that's really cool. You do have Bill, too. Yeah, he'll know. Knows a lot. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of almost have your own personal tour guide who can help out obviously he's not going to be available i'm assuming if they're there for an entire month i'm assuming he can't take off an entire month (laughs) to spend with his family but certainly he could spend time you know maybe after work and in the evenings on the weekends um so uh i i like the idea of bill kind of being their own personal tour guide through through certain parts but uh Yeah, it would be cool to kind of have your own separate wizarding experience um, because there are things you can see, obviously, that muggles can't or shouldn't. So it's important to to have that. Well, speaking about summer travel, Hermione's also having a lovely summer. She's in France with her family, and she notes in her letter to Harry that there's interesting local history concerning witchcraft and when i read this i was thinking back to the events of fantastic beast 2 much of which is set in france um was she hearing about a snake escaping from the circus or wizards on the hunt for an obscurus or grindelwald was here and killed a baby probably not but now that we have fantastic beasts these are things i think about when i hear about history in france i like this a lot it's very funny to think about. Yeah, maybe maybe even like a visit to the French ministry or it's interesting because oh, yeah. with with Hermione's parents being muggles, it's not necessarily like they would be their own best tour guides that they could get into some of these places. Um, Hermione maybe is like leading the charge or read enough of those like travel books and is able to figure out how her parents can come and see some of this stuff too with her because she's still like so underage. So that's interesting to see like to think about how she led her like herself around or was able to see some of these things. It's also not cool that neither of them invited Harry to come along. Yeah, what the heck, man? Yeah. <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah, yeah. I guess it's down to the parents. I'm sure Arthur and Molly. I mean, the Weasley's would... got nine. What's, what's ten? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, those are family vacations, right? Like, yeah, but you could see uh, Arthur and Bill, Arthur and Molly wanting to invite Harry along. They care about him a lot. They're he's like a son to them. So, yeah, that is kind of interesting. And plus, Harry's got money, so he can help cover (laughs) some of the expenses. Yeah. I mean, Harry has to go back to Privet Drive, though. So it's for the plot. True. Ultimately. Yeah. Do it for the plot. (laughs) I'd just like to point out before we move on uh, in the Discord, Justin pointed out that Harry saved their goddamn kid (laughs) in terms of why he should have gotten to go on vacation with the Weasleys. That is a good Point. You know what? In a answer to that, they invite him along to see the Quidditch World Cup. You know, those tickets weren't cheap. Mm. Mm-hmm. Two years later. Well, the next, no, the very next summer, the, the very next summer, like not the immediate come here next week. They need time to heal as a family. But the very next summer, he's invited to stay. Well, as Harry begins opening his gifts, he is presented with some items from Ron Hermione and Hagrid that really all pertain to events that are going to occur in this story. Um, and we've got a foreshadow alert for Ron's gift. So Ron sends Harry a pocket sneakoscope, which is supposed to light up and spin if someone untrustworthy untru- is around. Ron notes that Bill says these are just rubbish um, things that are intended to, you know, get suspicious tourists to spend a little bit of extra gold. Um, But Ron notes that it kept lighting up during dinner the night prior, which is very noteworthy because he also sends along a newspaper clipping talking about Mr. Weasley winning the 700 galleons. And it's a family photo of all the Weasleys in front of the pyramids, and who sits on Ron's shoulder but Scabbers. (laughs) Sorry, spoiler warning, everybody (laughs) who hasn't read Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, I mean, this book came out in 1999, so I think we're we're well past the statute of limitations on that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do have a, a potential crackpot theory, though. If the Sneakoscope actually does work, to detect untrustworthy people. And at the very least, I think we're led to believe it works here because of Peter. Is there a case to be made that it should have gone off constantly around Harry since he's a Horcrux and he has part of Voldemort's soul in him? Uh, I don't yeah, know. Maybe. I mean, Harry's a good guy, though. I feel like that should cancel it out. Isn't that the problem with the sneakoscope? Is that it keeps going off that Harry basically just puts it at the bottom of his trunk. Like once you get to Hogwarts, there's so many nefarious plots, even just from the students, that it's unreliable. Like this is a really thoughtful gift. Actually, what I don't remember until I just reread it is that Harry's very fond of it. He puts it down and just kind of like looks at it for a moment and smiles. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is a really cool gift. But if you really think about it longer, it's one of the worst gifts. This is about as useful as a remember or use. Uh, yeah, as a rememberal, which will tell you that you've forgotten something, but doesn't have a readout or display that helps you out. It's like, OK, so you're saying that somebody around me is keeping a secret. That's mm-hmm. everybody. Come on. So I feel like we true. need to bring back your segment uh, in terms of rating birthday gifts now as I opposed know. to Christmas gifts. But This is just one of those cool things that you get from a very close friend. I feel like we've probably all gotten gifts like that uh, at some point. Um, Yeah. Hermione's gifts are much more thoughtful, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. Ron's gifts are just kind of like 
the cool stuff that, you know, he's like, hey, what would my best friend really like getting? He's not somebody who's experienced much of the magical world. Oh, a sneakoscope that detects weird stuff that's going on around. You know, it's just something yeah. that a now 13-year-old would would like to have. I mean, and I speaking would... of that, Harry is officially a teenager now, uh, which yeah. is, you know, he can be bar mitzvahed. Um, it's it's kind of line up for that. It, it's the changing. He's a man. He's officially a man now in the eyes of the Jewish community. So Mazel tov. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think back to when I was 13. I'd have been happy if a friend gifted me like a crazy straw or <laughs> I used to line up at the school store to get cool erasers. Like there's, a you know, some, yeah. something tiny. I remember actually I got a, a pencil case uh, for th- when's third grade. It's like, oh, so I was eight or nine. But the I got a pencil case. And it was a gift from a friend, but it was thoughtful. It was also decorated like a space um, drawing, like a drawing of either the planets or something. And it was like really cool. And like, I never would have thought about it, but my friend was, just, you know, I don't know, maybe their mom took him to the store to get something for me, but I ended up really liking it. And it was a pencil case. It was just like, you know, it's so easy to please when you're just, you're just loved. That's what Harry, mm-hmm. you know, again, ends this chapter feeling just like loved by his friends. Well. And and going off what Laura's saying with her crackpot theory, um, I thought maybe it should be going off at Privet Drive because of the Dursleys. Though, in thinking about it a little bit more, I guess they aren't necessarily untrustworthy. They're just unapologetically a bunch of yeah. a-holes. <laughs> you right. can trust them right. to be awful. You can trust them to suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But Harry, you can set your watch by so it. So with the Horcrux, the only way I can explain it not going off is like maybe it can't detect him, like it, right? Like it's not, it's not a full person. So it's if you think about how the, like the magic would have to work, it's people with unknown motives or people who are untrustworthy, and and the Horcrux is not a people. It is certainly a remnant uh, or a traces, but I don't think the sneakoscope will be so powerful as to detect something that even Harry himself is not fully aware of. Yeah, 100%. And that's why it's a crackpot theory. But what you said, Eric, just made me think, you know, does the Horcrux go through periods of dormancy? Because we definitely see as the series ramps up, its presence becomes way more noticeable. Harry starts experiencing things as a direct result of the Horcrux. So maybe right now, after Chamber of Secrets, where there were definitely points in that chapter by chapter reread where we were like, is this the Horcrux <laughs> like awakening right now? Mm. Perhaps after the events of Chamber of Secrets, it's gone quiet. It's tired. And that's not to say it has anything to do with the sneakoscope. It um, needs a nap, Laura. <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, I need naps sometimes too. Me too. Yeah. I get it, Horcrux. It's it's recharging. All of its spell energy is depleted. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So thinking about Hermione's gift, um, and to the point I think, you know, Micah, you or Eric just made a few minutes ago, Hermione's gifts are always just a little more thoughtful. So she sends a really nice broomstick servicing kit, which is a nod to Harry receiving a new broom in this book. This is the book where he gets his firebolt after his Nimbus 2000 is destroyed by the Whomping Willow. The Whomping Willow, of course, which also comes more into play in this book. Very convenient that we got a nice introduction to it in the last book. Um, And then Hagrid 
sends Harry probably the most dangerous of his gifts. But like, I mean, are are any of us surprised? He sends Harry the monster book of monsters, uh, reflective of the fact that Hagrid is going to be assuming the post of care of magical creatures instructor this year. Um, so he just decided to send Harry one of his school textbooks early. Happy birthday. <laughs> And it is very dangerous. I think Harry even notes that Hagrid doesn't actually really think through, you know, the safety of an item like yeah. he should. But it did make me think about, I think, like, if you go to the Wizarding World theme parks here in the Muggle world and you look at the Monster Book of Monsters, which is in a cage in one of the stores, it has like a, a belt around it to keep its mouth shut. This doesn't seem to have that. And I was looking online and other pictures of the monster book of monsters doesn't seem to have that as well. It should come standard with a belt that you can wrap around it for safety reasons. Yes. I wonder if that was a movieism. Didn't Harry in the movie put his belt around it? And I wonder if that's why they did that mm. in the theme park. It does make more sense to have Harry sort of experience this at the Leaky Cauldron where there's a lot more room to wrestle with the book. Mm -hmm. Whereas now it's this huge hazard for the Dursley's basically kicking him out um, if he gets caught. So A plus on that aspect of the adaptation. But yeah, I mean, Hagrid, it's a thoughtful gift. It definitely gets points for that, although not specifically rating them. Um, but uh, he also saves Harry a couple of galleons and he saves the book attendant, uh, <laughs> the harassed book attendant that we're going to meet in a couple chapters uh, from having to get one for Harry. So A plus Hagrid. Yeah. I don't know about that. I, I think going back to Harry, as you said, like notes how Hagrid doesn't think through things. And I think this is a presumably very dangerous gift um, to give Harry, especially with no direction on how to actually tame it. Um, it could have literally been going around his room for hours on end before he was finally able to calm it down. Uh, and so that could have alerted Vernon and, and Petunia and could have gotten him into a lot of trouble. Who knows? It could have attacked one of the owls uh, as well. Um, I don't know. I think Hagrid just mm. and and I think we're going to talk a lot about him in this book, but it, it also just shows potentially a side of him that he's he's not qualified um, to teach uh, care of magical creatures. Um, and why why would you in teaching care of magical creatures? Um, assign a book called the monster book of monsters that just doesn't seem <laughs> yeah. to align properly with the curriculum so that's the charm of the book though no i know i know um, isn't that insensitive to beasts to call them monsters and have them be captured in the, in the book i mean if hagrid had put a little note saying by the way stroke the spine that would have gone a long way to making me think he, he like was a little bit more with it um but he doesn't and yeah, I think I think the points there are all valid relating to Hagrid. Mm -hmm. And thank you to Liza for pointing out that Harry does get his belt in the book. So it's not uh, okay, yeah. a movieism. It happens in the book, too. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm not sure if this is a foreshadow alert, but Errol shows up being supported by both Hedwig and the Hogwarts owl. And just to kind of draw a parallel to the end of prisoner of Azkaban, when Ron breaks his leg and he needs assistance from Harry and Hermione. Um, I didn't know if, if that was kind of a nod in the first chapter to the fact that Ron was going to need some support since of course, Errol is the Weasley family owl. We know Errol yeah. has I love problems. That. I like that. 
Um, <laughs> I love this. This is so cool. All right, we're all in favor. It's a foreshadow alert. Yeah. Because like the trio parallel, that's what gets me. Yeah. I mean, look, we know Errol has his problems and probably the Weasley. Just like Ron. Yeah. Well, I mean, Errol should Sorry, be that was mean. in retirement at this point, like just <laughs> somewhere in, you know, like an owl farm, just living out his best days. But um, the other thing I thought was kind of cool was this was very reminiscent of the beginning of Chamber of Secrets when the Weasley twins and Ron show up to rescue Harry. Um, because initially I'm sure that's where his head went when he first kind of saw this something in the distance and wasn't quite sure what it was. Uh, was he being rescued for a second straight year? And probably a little disappointed that he wasn't right. But then pleasantly surprised because of what the owls brought for him. Well, there's a bonus gift in here, but it's a little bit of a double-edged sword for Harry. Um, his Hogwarts letter comes and that letter comes with a permission slip to visit Hogsmeade as a third year. Harry very quickly realizes, though, that he needs um, a guardian to sign a permission slip for him to make those trips to Hogsmeade. And we're left at the end of this chapter with Harry wondering how he would ever be able to convince one of the Dursleys to sign this for him. And I just got to say, Ooh. I don't promote doing things like this generally. But Harry, do what so many others have done before you when it comes to school permission forms and forge their signatures. No one from Hogwarts is going to verify this with the Dursleys. No one's going to turn up and be like, did you sign this form saying that he could go to this wizard village? No. But, you know, the plot. True. I'll co-sign <laughs> that thought pun intended I agree. for the plot yeah and really just i know that the hogsmeade village this is very reminiscent of school field trips that you would need a permission slip to what laura just said to just forge it um but what exactly is the reasoning here this is like a book long struggle for harry because he is not able to fulfill this permission slip and if 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 all that this ever amounts to in the book is the amazing way that he receives permission at the end of the book, then okay, it was worth it. That's the moment that makes me almost cry the most, like without fail every time. But Hogsmeade Village is not dangerous in the way that other places would be dangerous. You're still extremely close to uh, Hogwarts. You're with- Like it. Hogwarts. Hogwarts is more dangerous. Hogwarts <laughs> is actually, I think we could make the case more dangerous than than Hogsmeade. So the whole needing to go there for Hogsmeade weekends, you know, it does drive the plot forward, but there's not anything besides driving the plot forward that would necessarily make you think, oh, you like you're 13. Yeah. Why 13? What about 13 means you're all of a sudden safe enough to go there? So it's kind of some questions, just a little nitpicky, but uh, from reading this, yeah. this is probably my 10th reread of the book. So <laughs> I think that. You know, certainly it allows for the introduction of the Marauders map, and that's the most important thing. But that being said, I agree, Laura. Forge the signature, get your buck butt to Hogsmeade, and have a good time. Like this kid needs to have a good time. Like, and also Dumbledore, step up. He saved your butt the last two books. He saved your school the last two books. Let him go and enjoy like a butter beer. 
in the three broomsticks. There's nothing that's unsafe about that. We see that even in his trips to Hogsmeade, professors go there. So he's protected. There there were so many ways to do this right by Harry, and they just chose not to. Yeah. I mean, it, ultimately, it doesn't... Um... It doesn't play into the chess match that Dumbledore is playing right now. So he's probably not even really thinking about it because in the grand scheme of things, it's not that important. But in the grand scheme of Harry's life and his mental wellness, um, it's very important. So, yeah, I agree. Um, sorry, Andrew, this is a number Dumble- uh, another Dumbledore criticism. It's OK. I won't add to the lie count. But it's a new book. <laughs> I'm feeling refreshed. <laughs> no. Actually, although we were just like very critical about the whole permission slip thing, I am reminded that the the fact that Harry isn't able to either forge it or get Vernon to sign it is used against Harry purposely by every adult who wants to keep him safer um, because Sirius Black is on the loose. So it's, yep. it's not necessarily that Hogsmeade is more dangerous than Hogwarts. It's not. But. Sirius Black can presumably get into Hogsmeade much easier than he can get into Hogwarts. So true. That's a great point, actually. It makes you wonder if um if none of the Sirius Black story arc happened in this book, would Harry have as have had as hard of a time? Would Professor McGonagall right. have been like, ah, oh, yeah, sure, Potter, I got you. I think she you would know. have, yeah, until she, instead she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't. And then just walks away. <laughs> no, that's a great, that's a great call out. Well, that's the end of the chapter, but we're going to get into some odds and ends here. Um, gotta call out that we get a Bethilda Bagshot reference, uh, author of A History of Magic and someone who comes into very significant play later on in the series. I never expected to meet her one day. I think that's pretty neat. Um, considering mm-hmm. A History of Magic is just that all around good book that you can go back to time and again. And also, I bet Harry could look up some stuff about ancient Egyptian wizards if he's interested. A History of Magic would certainly um, begin with the ancient civilizations uh, and how wizards first yeah, you would got think magic so. and used it in high society. Maybe there's something in there about Atlantis. I can see in the wizarding world, Atlantis having been like an all wizarding something, something, and it got too powerful. Little jokes there. Also want to call out that Ron is finally getting a new wand. He notes to Harry in the letter that they're going to save a little bit of the gold um, after their Egypt adventure. And he's going to get a new wand at Diagon Alley before he goes back to school. Good. They're done torturing their own son. Uh, (laughs) You know, that was just cruel that he had to go all school. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to go on another vacation, the least they got to do is spend money on a new wand. Seven galleons out of 700. Right. And this is going to be Ron's first real wand, isn't it? Because the wand that he had before was a hand-me-down. That's right. Aw, he finally gets a new wand. Yeah, well, he's finally gonna get to be chosen by a wand i know ron finally gets a wand that chooses him that would have been cool to see in the books a rond (laughs) okay and we have this episode's title uh rond rond you know what i want us to kind of keep an eye out for in this book based on that i want us to keep an eye on how ron's magic compares in this story to the prior two books because i have to imagine 
you're using a wand that's not yours. It's a hand-me-down in book one. And in book two, it's damaged beyond repair. So it it really can't do anything productive. I wonder if we see a whole new Ron, like new wand, new Ron, <laughs> you know, in book three moving forward. Does this that's magic get better? Yeah. <laughs> well, we see it with Neville too, right? So mm-hmm. it, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Something else I wanted to call out here. I don't think we've ever addressed this, but it really stuck out to me. Arthur not only works um, in the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office, but he's the head of that office at the ministry. And yet the Weasleys are so poor. So it, it just really stuck out to me as another example of how the ministry probably doesn't put much financial value behind this office even though they clearly do need it, um, which is, again, I think goes with the underlying theme of sort of like the wizard government and culture and how it regards muggles and other members of wizarding society who are not wizards. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's a really good call out. So you're suspecting that the head of a different department, say like a a more pure but aligned department, would make more money as the head of their department than Arthur does of his because it's muggles? Yep. That's interesting. I always thought of it as like more of a just a general ministry doesn't pay. Like, again, civil servants, right? So if you work for the government... Look, everyone knows that if you work for the government, the way to get money is special interests, lobbyists, take some cuts on the side. No, nobody's uh, making money because of their government uh, salary here uh, at the ministry. And I think Arthur would be above that. Well, I think so, too. But I think there's a real world parallel to draw here as well, because you're right. I mean, generally, if you're going into public service, you're not doing it for the money. But there are absolutely sectors of public service that are just intrinsically valued more by our society. And because of that, people who hold those positions, especially high up positions like the head of an office, make more money. So I think you could probably look at Arthur and compare him to some other heads of offices at the ministry. And I doubt that they're making the same money. Yeah. It's also... Good point that uh, Justin makes in the Discord saying that as far as we know, it's only a two-person office. So in terms of how much um, human capital is allocated by the ministry to muggles, Mm -hmm. uh, as far as we know, there's only two people. Uh, So uh, being the head of that department presumably uh, isn't going to get you a whole lot of income, though you can make the counter argument if he's probably the only person outside of Perkins, he should actually be getting paid more uh, because he's so specialized uh, in terms of what he does. But um, Eric, you actually, I think you brought this up a couple episodes ago. It's it's a wonder that Arthur even still has a job uh, in yeah. this book after what happened in Chamber of Secrets with the Fort Anglia. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a huge scandal. I'd be interested in knowing how it was either played down or whatever. It may, maybe because by the end of the year, Lucius had overstepped his bounds that he like couldn't kind of push it all the way and get Arthur fired completely. And Ginny, but maybe. It does, that, that could have yeah, played Oh, a and role. Ginny. That, yeah. Yeah, 
that that could very well be a thing. But yeah, it's it's um the head of the misuse of Muggle artifacts is seen misusing a Muggle artifact. Hello. It is the statute of secrecy. That's not one of the littler statutes. That's the bigger statute. Um, the one. It's like the prime directive almost. Uh, in fact, that's a great comparison I just made. But the whole thing about Arthur keeping his job and being allowed to then win the prize draw really draws attention just to, I think, about the howler. Your father's facing an inquiry at work. What happened? How did he get out of it? I want to know. Yeah, it would be good if we learned a little bit more about how that was resolved. A little smaller odd and end here that stuck out to me about the uh, family photo on their Egypt trip. Uh, We learned that Percy is now head boy. Not only is he head boy, but he has gone ahead and pinned his badge, his head boy badge to his fez while they're abroad, (laughs) which just made me want to vomit. You're not even at school right now, my man. Maybe he thinks it gets him into like cool, cool places. Maybe he's just proud of it. He's excited. I think it's it's a bigger deal now that we have, I guess, learned, because I never really knew this, that head boy, there's only one versus mm-hmm. prefects. There's two, a boy and a girl of each house right. when you turn, what, 15? So head boy is like, that's it for your grade level. And so I, I think that's worth being proud of. It's worth being proud of. But it's like, I don't know, if you think about the types of assignments you would find out about at the end of the school year, like I remember um, at the end of the school year, like you would find out if um, you had been selected for certain things that were going to start at the beginning of the next school year, usually, right? Like if you made certain teams, if you, um, you know, got some kind of like similar to Percy, like supervisory type elevated responsibility amongst your peers position. This would be akin to you getting like a badge from your school saying that you get to do this thing the next school year and you wear it all summer. Well, okay, here's I got it. College. When you first go off to college and you're touring schools and you realize you've gotten accepted to a college you toured, do you what do you get a hoodie? Before you enroll at the school, do you get one of the, you go to this? Yeah, yeah, you're proud of it. You, you wear, wear it the it. whole yeah. summer leading up to you've never attended this college as a student, but you wear the hoodie. Like Suddenly it's... you're huge fans of their football team. You never oh, cared yeah. before, but now that you're part of the school, oh my God, I go love this horns. team so much. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to, you know, crap on somebody for finding a sense of community with their college or their football team. Um, But with Percy, we know the reality is he's excited to have authority. Fair. He's excited to be able to be elevated and have power and authority and be distinguished in that way. And we see how that plays out for him. Well, not well. Okay. Uh, Okay. Authority, maybe because we do know how he likes it at the ministry when he's the assistant to or the under assistant to the minister or whatever. But right now I think he just likes the recognition. He's making his family proud. Molly in particular is wanting any of her children that are still at school to amount to literally anything. And uh, he is very like pleased to be noticed. I think in that way from the school, from the institution, which he puts all his faith in. So I think it's more than that than, than ambition mm-hmm. at this point necessarily, but it does look good on a resume. One thing I want to call out, uh, going back very briefly to Ron's wand, um, Becky in the Discord had a really good, uh, she looked it up uh, and said, Charlie's wand that was passed down to Ron was made of ash, 
which is said to cling to its one true owner and should never be passed down because it loses power and skill. So poor Ron had no chance with it. Thank Good you catch. for catching that. That's great. Well, especially given that he 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 breaks it on top of it. So that's like a double whammy. Well, yeah, no, and it's broken. Yeah. yeah. I just um, just with Percy, I, I think that, you know, imagine what he would have been like this year if he didn't become head boy. I, I think like that's his ultimate aspiration. And then we know once he he graduates, it's to work for the ministry and, and move his way up, uh, at least initially. So uh, I I actually don't mind him being so proud of this achievement that he's wearing his his badge and, and showing it off. And I think probably some of it is to spite Fred and George, uh, who undoubtedly make fun of him for it. I, I also think he's he's very much compared because he's the next child in line to to Bill and Charlie. And we know that Arthur and Molly are very proud of them. I think Bill was actually head boy as well. I did a little bit of research there. So we do have, you know, another head boy in the family. But for for Percy, I think it's just he needs something that he can latch on to that allows him to stand out. Like we see it with a lot of the other kids too, right? Like we talk a lot about how Ron oftentimes doesn't feel like he gets the recognition he deserves. Uh, I feel like Percy is, you know, he has to fight for himself a lot and doesn't get a lot enough credit. Yeah, I'll be the outlier here. I think that uh, this is obnoxious, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then just got to, you know, call out Hedwig here. She's coming in clutch again, making sure Harry gets presents. Um, We learned that she, you know, she turned up uh, proactively Hermione was trying to figure out how she was going to get her gift to Harry. And all of a sudden, Hedwig turned up and Hermione notes that she believes Hedwig wanted to make sure that Harry got presents for his birthday. She didn't get pecked on the fingers like Hedwig is known to do before. No. (laughs) That sounds like a potential candidate for the following. But not for me. I'm going to give my MVP to Ron, a smart character in the series for giving Harry a sneak scope They might not know the importance yet, but stay tuned. That's great. I'm going to give my MVP. I'm so excited to praise the loose floorboard in Harry's bedroom. <laughs> it hides any manner of things every year, year in, year out. That loose floorboard is the real MVP. I'm going to give mine to Hedwig. I feel like I just made the case for it, so I got to do it. Work is done. Well, Laura, along those lines, I'm actually going to give it to Vernon, because if Vernon does not let Hedwig out, wow, Harry doesn't get birthday presents. Oh, so that's true. He didn't, mean, he didn't mean to help Harry, but he does. What a twist. If you have any feedback about today's episode or the chapters ahead... You can send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com, or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com. If you want to practice yelling into a telephone, you can call 19203-MUGGLE. That's 19203684453. Or if you have any other feedback, you can call that number or send us a voice message. Just record it using the voice memo app on your phone. It's higher quality than the telephone. And then email that to mugglecast at gmail.com. We love getting everybody's feedback. We don't air it all. We don't read it all on air, but we do read it all behind the scenes and listen to it all behind the scenes. So thank you, everybody who takes the time to send in that feedback. We really appreciate it. And now it's time for some quizage. 
last week's question, how long did Harry go without hearing from his friends until his 13th birthday? There is a line in the book where Harry talks about how it's been five long weeks. Though some listeners have pointed out that because Ron calls Harry a week into the summer break, that maybe it's less. Well, five weeks was the accepted answer, and the correct answers were submitted by Artemis Fido Jr. II, Buff Daddy, Bored Voldemort, Broke Witch, Chosen Taco, Elizabeth K, Hermione's Busy Hair Remover, Hermione's Helping Nose Ring, Witch in Training, Ravenclaw Nerd, and somebody in all caps, Hello, hello, can you hear me? I want to talk to MuggleCast. Nice. Yes, we hear you. Very nice. It's the, these themed names around the question and the chapter are a little extra chef's kiss. But next week's Quizage question. Looking ahead to chapter two of Prisoner of Azkaban, how much does Dudley get paid to hug Aunt Marge? Whatever it is, it's not enough. Uh, submit your answer to us using the quizage form located on the MuggleCast website MuggleCast.com slash quizage or go to MuggleCast.com and click on quizage from the main nav we mentioned our Patreon already but if you'd prefer to support us right through Apple Podcasts maybe you listen to the show that way just tap into the show and there's a subscribe button and for $2.99 a month you can receive ad-free MuggleCast and early access to each new episode of the show right within the Apple Podcasts app and by subscribing there, you're helping us just like patrons do. And you can subscribe for a year up front and you will get a little discount for doing that. So maybe if you just prefer one charge instead of 12 throughout the year, then that is an option for you. No matter how you support us, we really appreciate it. If you can't support us financially, how about a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? If you love the show, we would really appreciate a five-star review. And on Apple Podcasts, you can write a little message there, too. We'd also appreciate if you followed us on social media. We're MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I am Andrew calling. Uh, This is Eric saying, don't come near my family. I am Micah. Can you hear me? I am Laura, Harry's friend from Hogwarts. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.